0: Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Hello and welcome to part two of our study in the Three Angels Messages series. In part one, we looked at the first angel's message. We looked at who it is that we are to worship when the message says, fear God, give glory to him and worship him. We saw that the issue in the last days is over worship and the identity of who we worship is vital. And we found that the identity that we are called upon to worship and honor that person spoken of in the first angel's message is none other than the Father, the only true and living God. We also saw the only way to come to the Father. That's through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we saw why Jesus Christ is the only one in the whole universe who holds that unique position of being the only way to the Father. And that's because He is the only Begotten Son, and we saw what that entails. In part two of our study today, entitled Unmasking the God of Babylon, we're going to go a little deeper into these aspects. We're going to look at the second angel's message, and we're going to focus particularly on how we can have a relationship with God, even though we cannot see Him physically. And then we're going to see the deception that Satan has prepared for the world in the last days. And we're going to unmask that deception that deals with the identity of who we are to worship. Let's start our study and let's go into the scriptures, our textbook, where we will find all the answers for our questions that we are looking at. You remember last time in our study, we looked at a verse in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Let's look at that verse again because here we come to an aspect that is vital for our understanding in order to come to God in true worship as Jesus said, that the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We want to look at what God has revealed to us about how He communicates and has a relationship with us, even though we cannot see Him. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. The Bible says, speaking of Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Here we see a very interesting revelation in this text. Last time we looked at this text, we saw that it talked about the equality of Christ with God. But here we want to notice something else. It tells us that Christ was in the form of God. This means that God has a form and Christ is in the same form. Well, that's an interesting aspect that not many people think about when it comes to God. Does God really have a form? You know, when I was studying nursing, we had to do a subject that is called anatomy and physiology. In anatomy and physiology, we had to study the makeup and the structure of the human system. We studied the organs. We studied the different parts that make up the human body and how they worked and related to each other. You see, it's important to understand that man in his physical as well as spiritual nature, was made in the image and likeness of God. The form and the makeup and the anatomical structure of man actually bears resemblance to the creator of man. This is an aspect that not many people think about when it comes to God. But we want to see what the scripture has to say about this. If God has a form, what kind of a form is it like? Because Jesus Christ was in that same form before he became a man. We're going to go through the scriptures and we're going to see how God has chosen to reveal certain aspects about himself. We're going to look at some prophets who had visions of God, where God has revealed something of that form which he has, what it is like. One such prophet tells us in Ezekiel chapter one. Let's look at it together. Ezekiel Chapter 1 and verse 26. The Bible here tells us, And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. Ezekiel here tells us that he saw God's throne and then he describes the occupant of the throne and he tells us that he has the likeness as the appearance of a man. So in the form that God has, it looks like a man. The inverse is actually true. It is man who looks like God because God is the original. This aspect, like I said, is perhaps foreign to many people. And yet Jesus taught it very emphatically when He was here on earth. He taught that His Father has a form and a shape. Some people might be surprised at that. But we can read this in John chapter 5. Let's look at it together in the Holy Scriptures. John 5, 37 says, And the Father Himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His shape. According to Jesus, who we found is the highest authority on this topic, he tells us that his father has form and shape. And we saw that the prophet Ezekiel was given visions of God where he saw what that form and shape was like. It was as the appearance of the likeness of a man. You know, Ezekiel is not the only one who saw visions of God. There were other prophets who were privileged to catch glimpses of what God was really like. Daniel, for example, in chapter 7, saw him sitting on a throne clothed in white garments and his hair was white as wool. In the story of Moses, if you remember in Exodus, when he asked God to show him his glory, the Bible says that God passed before Moses and Moses looked on his back parts. Here we see God operating on a level that we can call physical and visible. In other words, prophets were given glimpses of God operating on that level where they could actually see him and see what he, what he looked like to a certain extent. Let's look at a little, a little closer at this aspect so that we can make sure we have the right understanding. Does that mean that God has a form and shape, that he also has a face, for example? Let's look at what Jesus said about this. Again, the highest authority on this question. We find the answer in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10. Jesus says, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. According to Jesus, the angels in heaven see the Father's face. You see God has a face. The fact that the angels in heaven can see his face means that God operates there on a physical and visible level. It's a level on which he can be seen. Now the question is, are we going to ever see God in this way? Are we ever going to be privileged to see God on that physical and visible level? You see, most of us, if not all, have never seen God in this way. But the Bible gives us a beautiful promise that if faithful, we can have the same privilege that the angels in heaven have. We read about that in Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. The Bible says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart are going to see God. Are they going to see him just figuratively? Is this symbolic language? Or are they really going to see him on the physical and visible level as the angels do in heaven? The book of Revelation gives us the answer in the beautiful promise found in the last chapters of that book. Revelation 22, verse 3 and 4. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. The Bible tells us that if faithful, the promise is that we are going to see God's face. You see, friends, God is a real being, he has real form and shape. He has a face that one day, if faithful, we are going to have the privilege of beholding his face. This is an important aspect to understand about God. A lot of people conceive of God as devoid of any form and shape and any substance. And this is contrary to the teachings of the scriptures. Jesus taught us very plainly and he has revealed to us this information. Not only that, but God himself has revealed to the prophets visions and glimpses of himself operating on that physical and visible level because he is A real being. We want to look at another aspect now that will help us understand how we who have never seen God on this physical and visible level can still have a relationship with him. Is God only a physical being? Is God only limited to that aspect? The answer is no. We know this because Jesus revealed that fact to us. Let's read his explanation in John chapter 4 in the story of the woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 24, the Bible says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. According to Jesus, the Father, God, is not just a physical being who has form and shape, but he is also spirit. The Bible tells us God is spirit. In other words, friends, God can operate on another level different to the physical and visible level. It's a spiritual level. It's a level which we can call the spiritual and invisible level. And this is precisely the importance of understanding the identity of God and how God can operate on a level that we cannot see Him, which is how we can have a relationship with Him. We want to look at this aspect a little closer. The aspect of the spirit of God. If God is a spirit, what does that really mean? What is that spirit? What is the identity particularly of that spirit? As far as God has revealed it in scripture. Because understanding that will help us understand how we can truly worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's look at a Bible and see how the Bible defines for us its own terms. We want to understand the meaning of the word spirit as it is used in the scriptures. A very good place to find this answer is in two verses that use the same word. Let's look at the first one in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 13. The Bible says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him. Isaiah here asks a question relating to the spirit of the Lord. It's interesting that the apostle Paul in the New Testament in the book of Romans quotes this verse but he quotes it and gives us an insight into what the word spirit really means. Let's read it together in Romans chapter 11 and verse 34. Paul says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? Did you notice something different when Paul quotes the verse? When the Bible says in the Old Testament, the spirit of the Lord, Paul quotes that and he says, the mind of the Lord. This tells us that the spirit and the mind really mean the same thing. The spirit of the Lord is also the mind of the Lord. It's how God operates on the spiritual and invisible level. If we look up in the concordance, the actual meaning of the word spirit, we will find that it reveals and confirms this fact plainly. We read it and it says the word spirit in the Hebrew and it means wind, breath, mind, spirit, and life. You see, all these aspects, all these definitions, are speaking of non-tangible, spiritual things. By spiritual, we mean that they are not physical. They are real, but they are not tangible. They are not physical. You see, when the Bible talks about the spirit, it is talking about an aspect, as we referred to earlier, that is non-visible. It is spiritual and non-visible to us. Not only can God operate on a physical and visible level, as He does in heaven, but He also is spirit and He can operate by His spirit on a spiritual, invisible level. Perhaps this is getting a little confusing. Let's see if we can simplify it by looking At the object lesson that God gave us. But by looking at man who was made in the image and likeness of God. This will help us understand a little more about the spirit of God. Particularly its identity. And how God himself can still be with us. Even though we do not see him. We'll go to the story of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel we find there an interesting passage relating to spirit. Let's look at chapter 2 and verse 1. The Bible says "And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep brake from him. Here we see an interesting account that the king Nebuchadnezzar dreamed a dream and his spirit was troubled. What does the Bible mean when it says his spirit was troubled? Well, we already found the definition. That means his mind was troubled. His thoughts were perplexed. It does not mean that he was physically shaking, but something on the inside, something on the spiritual level, his mind was troubled. When we speak of Nebuchadnezzar in this way, we understand that the Bible is referring to Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's not referring to someone else when it says his spirit was troubled. We wouldn't understand that to mean that somebody in the next room was troubled. Because the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar is really his mind. It's that part of Nebuchadnezzar that is not physical or visible to human sight. It's an invisible aspect, and yet it is real. You see, just because we cannot see the mind, it doesn't mean that it's not there. For example, when a person dies and they perform a, an autopsy on them to see perhaps the cause of their death, you know, they can open up different parts of his body and examine different organs. Where would they look to locate the mind? Or well, someone might say, well, they would look somewhere in the head or in the brain. But if they open the person up, where exactly is the mind to be found? You see, the mind is not a physical organ. The mind is a spiritual aspect that dwells in the brain. That is a physical organ. But the mind is that part of man that is spiritual, that is invisible. But just because it's invisible doesn't mean it's not real. It is just as real, and we know that. This is important to understand because man was made in the image and likeness of God. Paul draws an analogy that will help us understand a little better what the Bible means when it talks about the Spirit of God. Let's read it together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, the Bible says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man, which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Here Paul is drawing an analogy, a comparison between man and his spirit, and God and his spirit. And he says that these two are similar. He uses the connecting words, even so, or in like manner, or in the same way. We saw that the relationship between man and his spirit is that of an intimate and close one. That is, the spirit of man is really his own mind. It's his character. It's that part of man that is invisible, that constitutes his real personality. Paul says, even so, or in the same way, is the relationship between God and His Spirit. You see, friends, that means that the Spirit of God is really none other than the mind of God. It is not somebody different to Him. It is that part or aspect of God by which He operates on a spiritual and invisible level. It's called the Spirit of God because God Himself is a Spirit. We want to look a little closer at that because this will help us understand how God can be dwelling and sitting on his throne in heaven and still be with us here today without having to send someone different to him. He himself is able to be with us. Let's look how the Bible defines and explains this aspect a little further for us. We go to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament and we find what the Bible says in chapter 139 and verse 7. David says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit or whither shall I flee from thy presence? According to the inspired King David, he saw that God's spirit is equal to God's presence. This is common usage in the Hebrew form of writing, particularly in the Psalms, where he would say the same thing in different words. David says, Whither shall I flee from thy spirit, or whither shall I go from thy presence? You see, the Spirit of God is the presence of God, not someone else. This is important because this helps us understand something. For example, when we pray, when we go to church, or when we have a meeting, and when we ask God to be present with us, Do we believe that God answers our prayers? The answer is yes. The very fact that we're praying them shows that we believe God hears and answers. Now, when we ask for God's presence, how many of us can actually see God on the physical and visible level as being present in the meeting? Probably no one. And yet we believe that he is present. Well, how is he present? The answer is he is present by his spirit. You see, God can operate and function on a level that is different to the physical and visible. God comes and is present by His Spirit, which is He Himself on the spiritual invisible level. It's called the presence of God. And just because we cannot see it, just because we cannot feel it, does not mean that it's not real. David expands on this a little further and gives us a clearer definition of what God's presence is referred to in the scriptures as. In Psalm 51, that wonderful repentance prayer. Let's read it together. Psalm 51 and verse 11, the Bible says, Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. What a wonderful description. Here the Bible makes it very clear that the presence of God, When God is present on that spiritual, invisible level, it is called in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit. This is what the identity of the Holy Spirit is. It is actually the very presence of God himself, not someone else, as we saw very clearly in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to look at that story a little closer, because in that story is also revealed the deception that Satan has prepared for God's people and the world in the last days. But it's important to keep that point in mind. The name for the presence of God on the spiritual, invisible level in the scriptures is the Holy Spirit. You see, this is how we can have a relationship with God even though we cannot see Him because God Himself is still able to be present with us. This is a beautiful truth that can help us understand how we can worship God in spirit and in truth, you see, friends, confusion over this point has resulted in people not knowing exactly where to direct their worship. And so, as a result, you find people that worship God, but they also worship the Holy Spirit, thinking that it is someone else. And yet, the Scriptures makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is very the very presence of God Himself. Let's look at how this is further clarified as we look at where the Holy Spirit comes from. This will confirm our findings. We find the answer in John chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus speaking says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. According to Jesus, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. It comes from the Father because it's his very own mind. It's his own character. It's his actual personality. Not physically, because God is spirit. And God, by his spirit, can be present on the spiritual, invisible level. As we believe he is in our gatherings, in our Bible studies, and in our church services. But where else does the Holy Spirit come from? We saw in our study last time that the Son of God, because of his divine inheritance has inherited from the Father all things. Let's see how the Bible explains to us the Holy Spirit comes, because Jesus says that He is the only way to the Father. And the Bible also says that Christ is the only mediator between us and God. A mediator is a go-between. as somebody who connects two parties. Christ is in that position. Now notice how the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit comes from somewhere that is very significant with regards to Christ Jesus. Let's read the text in John chapter 20, verse 22. Jesus speaking, and when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Where did the Holy Spirit come from here? It came from Jesus. He breathed on the disciples and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Once again, this illustrates the invisible and spiritual aspect of the Spirit of God. The breath is the substance of life. The breath is an invisible, non-tangible aspect. And in breathing on His disciples, Christ was imparting to them His life or His Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, which He has by inheritance from the Father, who is the living and true God. You see, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, through the Son to us. That's why when we have the Spirit, when we have the presence of God, we really are possessing and having the presence of the Father and the Son. Not physically or tangibly, but by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's really who the Holy Spirit is. Now some people in looking at this aspect might get confused. They say, well, If there is a spirit coming from the Father and the spirit comes from the Son, doesn't that mean that there is more than one spirit? Let's look at the Bible and see what it tells us about this point. How many spirits are there? The answer is in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. According to the Bible, there is only one spirit. There is one Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of God. And it's the Spirit of Christ. Both mean and refer to the same thing. This might sound strange to you, but that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Let's look at Romans chapter 8 and see how Paul emphasizes this point. That the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ is really the same thing. It is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verses 9 and 10. It says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. You see here what Paul says. He uses interchangeably two terms to refer to the same thing. At the beginning, he says the Spirit of God, and then he says the Spirit of Christ. We know that this is speaking about the same one spirit. And then he clarifies for us the identity of the spirit. He says, and if Christ be in you. You see, friends, when we have the spirit of God in us, when we have the spirit of Christ in us, we really have Christ in us. That's how we can have a relationship with God, because only Christ is the way, the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by Him. And Christ can operate in this manner because He, like the Father, can operate on a spiritual, invisible level. It's called the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. That's how Christ Jesus dwells in our hearts. This is a beautiful truth. And Christ Himself confirms this fact that when we receive the Holy Spirit, we are really partaking and receiving of the Father and the Son, not someone else. Notice how Jesus elaborated on this in John chapter 14 and verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words and my Father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Did you catch that? Jesus says, we, referring to the Father and himself. When we receive the Spirit, when we have the words of Jesus and love His words and keep them in our hearts, we are actually receiving the Father and the Son. It's the presence of the Father and the Son. Not physically, but on the spiritual, invisible level. That is what the Holy Spirit is. And that is how we can have communion and fellowship with the same God who is sitting on the throne while we are here on earth. You see, God is able to do this. He doesn't need to send someone else as if he is incapable of being with his children, even though he sits on his throne in heaven. That's because God is so great and infinite and incomprehensible to us that he has chosen to reveal that he can at least operate on these two levels that we looked at, the physical and visible, and also the spiritual and invisible. It's the same God, the same wonderful, mighty God, who can do that? That's how we can have a relationship with Him. Jesus explains further in the same book that we looked at in John and tells us that the aspect and the understanding of the Spirit is important for us for certain reasons. Let's look at another verse that clarifies this for us John chapter 14, verses 16 and 26. Jesus here speaking says, And I will pray the Father. And he shall give you another Comforter, that he may abide with you forever. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now this passage might be confusing to some people because here Jesus says, I will send you another Comforter. And people say, well, the Spirit cannot be really the same Person of God, it must be a different person to God because Jesus said another. Well, let's Jesus clarify who this other comforter is. We just read that he said it's the Holy Spirit. And we saw that the Holy Spirit is defined in Scripture as God's presence on the invisible and spiritual level. You see, this is the other comforter that Jesus was referring to. It's the fact that Christ was going to be present with his disciples on a different level, on another level to comfort them. But let's look at how the scriptures identify this for us. Who really is this spirit that Jesus was speaking of? Let's look at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. The Bible says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, because we are sons, God sends forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. This is what brings us comfort. This is what brings us assurance. The spirit of the Son is not a different individual. It's not a different person to the Son. Just as we saw that the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar is not a different person to him. Well, does that mean that the Lord Himself is that spirit that comforts us? Let's look at the Bible and see what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. How plain is the answer from the Scriptures? The Lord, Jesus Christ Himself, is that Spirit. This is what the Bible means when it talks about the other comforter. Well, who is this? Does Jesus really confirm that the Lord, He Himself, is that comforter? That Christ himself, by his own spirit, is the one who comforts us? Let's see what Jesus said about that in his own words. John chapter 14 and verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Friends, I believe the words of Jesus mean exactly what he says. When Jesus says, I will come to you, he means, I will come to you. He comes to us in a different form. He comes to us in another way, different to how he was with the disciples. You see, he was with the disciples on the physical and visible level. They could actually see him with their eyes. They could feel him. They could touch him. And that's what John talks about. But then Jesus says, listen, I'm going to go and I'm going to give you another comforter. I will actually be your comforter. Well, what's different now? Why did Jesus say another? The answer is Jesus now is our comforter on a different level, on another level, on the spiritual and invisible level. He dwells now in our hearts. That's why the Bible says it's the Spirit of the Son. That's why the Bible also says that the Lord is that Spirit. You see, only Jesus was tempted and tried like you and I. That's why only Jesus is the one who is qualified to be our Comforter. And it's this way that Christ can still be the only way to the Father. Because He is with us and in us by His Spirit. And He, the same one, not a different one, is physically present in heaven in the presence of the Father mediating on our behalf. This wondrous truth helps us to understand the identity of who we are to worship and how we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. This is what the angel's message is all about, the first angel's message. And as we look at the concluding elements in this message, we find a beautiful verse of scripture that brings all these things that we have looked at together in one verse. You know, the first angel's message says that we're to fear God, give glory to Him, and worship Him. We saw who that God is. We saw how we can come to the Father. And we saw also how the Father and the Son can have that communion and relationship with us. The one verse that sums all this up beautifully is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through Him, that's Christ, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Through Christ, we have access by one Spirit to the Father. The Father is the one that we worship. He is the true and living God. We have access through Christ by one Spirit. That's the spirit of Christ. You see, Christ is the only mediator. When we understand this, when we have this in mind, this will help us as we progress now to look at the elements of the second angel's message and see how the devil has prepared a deadly deception for the whole world through a misunderstanding of the truths of the scriptures that we just found. As we look at this aspect, we need to go back to the book of Revelation and see What the next verse says after the first angel's message. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. The Bible says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This message speaks of the fall of Babylon. So important is this that God repeats it twice. He says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Well, we want to look at Babylon today a little bit. We're going to look at history. We're going to be traveling back and forward in history. And we're going to look at the elements that contribute to the fall of Babylon. And we want to particularly notice what the issue is. And that is the issue of worship. We're going to look at what the issue of worship has to do with Babylon and how that relates to us in the last days. This will help us unmask the God. Of Babylon and the deception that the God of Babylon has prepared for God's people and the world in the last days. So important and vital is this message that it's actually repeated again in the book of Revelation chapter 18 and we look at the first few verses in that chapter. Verse 1 says and after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory. Verse 2 and he cried mightily with a strong voice saying Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. What a fearful description. Again, the same message is repeated, but this time God clarifies all the negative and fearful deceptions and elements that are present in Babylon. He says it's become the hold of every foul spirit it's the habitation of devils. This is a very, very serious charge. Why is Babylon the habitation of devils? And how is the devil operating through Babylon to deceive the world? This is what we're going to uncover shortly. In order for us to understand what the Bible means, in order for us to get a comprehension, we need to go back in history. You see, there's a very important principle in the scriptures. The principle of What has happened before will happen again. God confirms this by using the term Babylon to refer to the system of deception in the last days. You see, there is no literal place called Babylon today. But there was a literal place at one point in history that was called Babylon. And God is pointing us by using that same name. He is pointing us back in time to go back to history and look at Babylon so that we can learn what will happen in the last days. So, we're going to do that right now. If we go back to the story of Babylon, we looked at Nebuchadnezzar earlier and we saw the verse that said he had a dream wherewith his spirit was troubled. Remember, he was the king of Babylon. And we had that dream. That dream was sent to him from God. When Nebuchadnezzar had that dream, you remember he could not remember the dream, and he wanted to not only remember it, but understand its meaning. So he called his wise men and magicians. They could not help him, and he ordered them to be killed. But Daniel prayed to the God of heaven, and the God of heaven, the true and living God, revealed to Daniel the secret of what the dream was and the interpretation. Daniel, of course, goes to Nebuchadnezzar and reveals to him and goes through the details of his dream, interpreting the dream And Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed that he gives one of the most wonderful confessions we read about in the scriptures. Let's read it together in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 47. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. What a wonderful confession from a heathen king, the king of Babylon. He recognized that Daniel had said the truth. And he recognized, because of Daniel confessing that God was the source of his wisdom, he recognized that the God of Daniel is the true God. He's a God of gods and a Lord of kings. What a wonderful description. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had come in contact through Daniel with the true and living God. And he recognized that. But Daniel, of course, when he had revealed the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, he had told him that after his kingdom of Babylon, there would arise another kingdom and then another and another. Over time, Nebuchadnezzar thought about this. And his confession and his conviction weakened. And he thought it would be a better idea if his kingdom would last forever. And so he decided to do something whereby he could enlist the allegiance and loyalty of all his counselors and leaders and those who hold positions in his kingdom to pledge their loyalty and allegiance to making sure that Babylon would remain and would stand forever. It would not pass away. We read about what Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits, and the breadth thereof six cubits, he set it up in the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. You see, the king here built a great image of gold. And this image of gold was to represent his kingdom lasting forever. If you remember in the dream, only the head was of gold. The rest of the image was made of different metals. Now Nebuchadnezzar, who was represented by this head of gold, builds an image made entirely of gold to symbolize his rejection of God's plan and his rebellion against God's wishes and God's revelation and that he will make his kingdom last forever. Now, who do you think was inspiring King Nebuchadnezzar to do this? It could be none other than the enemy of God and man. This was inspired directly by Satan, that Nebuchadnezzar would rise in opposition to what God has revealed. Let's see how Nebuchadnezzar was going to enlist the allegiance and loyalty of his subjects, the leaders, the representatives of his, of his subjects, in putting their allegiance and loyalty towards making Babylon last forever. This is where it starts getting interesting because it touches on the issue that will happen again in the last days. Let's read Daniel 3 and verse 6. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth Shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace? What a fearful law the king made. It's a law that deals with worship. You see, the issue right then and there in Babylon was an issue that relates to worship. You see, the loyalty and the allegiance of all the people in their representatives was going to be portrayed by an act of worship. An act of worship that was strengthened by a law that the king made you see there was a death threat associated with this act of worship particularly those who refused to worship there was a death threat the king made a law that whosoever does not worship will be cast into the burning fire this is particularly of note to keep in mind because the same thing will happen again as we shall see See what we're doing here, friends, is we're looking at the literal story of Babylon and what actually happened there. And from that literal story of Babylon, we are gaining lessons that will help us understand the spiritual application in the last days. There is a strong link between the literal and the spiritual, and we see that in the story of Babylon. But you remember that when the king made that law, there were three Hebrew boys who stood faithful to the true God. These three Hebrew boys represent a group of people in the last days. We're going to look at that group of people. Because the three Hebrew boys refused to worship the gods of Babylon. You see allegiance and worship to the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Meant allegiance and worship to the power that inspired the king to set the image up. The issue here was worship. And worship, whether it will go to God, the true and living God, or to the enemy of God, the devil. And here we see the devil operating through the government at the time of Babylon to enact a law that demands worship. These are important elements because that's exactly the same thing that will happen again, as we shall shortly see. And these three Hebrew boys refused to go along with the king's plan. We read of their declaration, their beautiful confession. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 18, they said, But if it not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. These faithful Hebrew boys publicly and fearlessly declared that their allegiance, their loyalty, and their worship only goes to the true God of heaven. You see, The king's law was violating the liberty and freedom of conscience. It was touching on an area that belonged only to God. And the Hebrew boys recognized this and they said, We only serve and worship, not your gods, but the God of heaven. Even if that means the loss of our lives. You see, friends, this story has vital elements for us to understand so that we can comprehend what will happen in the last days. We see that the story of Babylon involved the issue of worship and worship that was going to go to the gods of Babylon or the true God and this issue was enforced by law. Now let's go back to the book of Revelation. We've just finished looking at the literal story. Let's go now to the book of Revelation and see how the same elements are going to happen on a worldwide scale. Let's go to Revelation 13. Verses 2 to 4. Revelation 13 verse 2 to 4 says, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Let's pause here for a minute. It tells us of this power called the beast power that receives from the dragon power and great authority. So much so that its influence and effect reaches the whole world. Just like the proclamation of Nebuchadnezzar went throughout his whole kingdom, the power and authority of this beast affects the whole world so that the whole world wanders after the beast. But let's keep reading and see particularly what the issue is really all about. Verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? See the issue, friends? This worldwide deception has to do with worship. Particularly worship. That goes to the dragon. The whole world will be deceived into following and wandering after the beast. And they will be deceived into worshipping, not the true God, but the dragon. Well, who is this dragon? The Bible tells us plainly who this dragon is. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. You see, the dragon is none other than Satan. It's the devil. And his purpose is to deceive the whole world. This is an important point. You see, Satan cannot gain the worship of the people of the world openly because many people would not be interested in doing that. So he uses a deception. He uses a very clever deception whereby he can gain the worship of the whole world. This is vital, and this is why God sends a message in the first angel's message so that everybody would know who the true God is, that they might worship him and avoid the deception of Satan. This is really what this whole series is all about. We want to uncover this deception of Satan. Having looked at the true, we want to see how is it that he will accomplish his purposes. Let's keep reading in the book of Revelation and see how else this point is of vital importance in the same way as it was in Babylon. Let's look at Revelation 13 and verse 15. It says, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Do you notice a similar aspect here? There is a death sentence attached to this issue of worship that is a worldwide issue in the last days. You see why we looked at the story of Babylon? You see why God uses names of things and places that happened in the past to give us insight as to what will happen in the future. So in the last days, the devil is going to be worshipped through a deception that will captivate the whole world, and there will be a death sentence attached to that deception. These are momentous issues because this is the very thing that is happening around us in the world right now. We want to uncover what that really means. So important and so vital is this truth. So important and vital is this aspect that God has given to us time and again, different descriptions of the same power that the devil will use to deceive the whole world. You see, when something is important in the scripture, God repeats it more than once. This issue is so important. This issue is a salvational issue. This is a life and death issue that God identifies for us, this system and this power that the devil will use and utilize to deceive the whole world. We read about it in Revelation 13 as the first beast. Let's read another description of the same power in Revelation 17 and the first few verses of that chapter. Verses 1 to 4 say, The angel speaks to John, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. See, friends, here's a description of a system or a power or an institution that is referred to as the Great Whore. Now, if we look at prophecy, we find that in prophecy, certain Terms and names mean something. A woman in prophecy symbolizes a church. We read that in Revelation 12, where there is a pure woman standing on the moon, clothed in the sun, and she represents a pure church. In Revelation 17 here, we just read of an impure woman. She is known as the great whore. An impure woman represents an impure church. This is important because it gives us an insight That the devil will use a church system, a church organization, in order to perpetuate his deception that will affect the whole world so that they can worship him. This is really what we're dealing with. This, this, This explanation and this declaration confirms what we found earlier. God reveals to us that he is speaking about the same power that we looked at earlier in the very end of that chapter. Let's look at chapter 17 again. The last few verses. Verse 18 tells us. And the woman. Which is the impure woman. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city. Which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Remember what the angel says in the second angel's message in Revelation 14, 18. It says Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city. And here the Bible tells us that this woman is that Great city. You see how God uses different terms to refer to the same power so that we do not miss it. What a loving, wonderful God we have. He gives us information in different ways and different means so that none need to be deceived by this demonic, deceptive power that will captivate and deceive the whole world. Not only in the book of Revelation, but there are other places where God, through his inspired messengers, refers to the same power under a different name. And notice, as we read this description, this power will deny and attack the truth that the first angel's message establishes. The truth about the Father and the Son. Let's read the description that is perhaps the most well-known in the world today. We find it in the, gospel, in the book, the epistle of John. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 22. It says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. This description or this power is now described as the Antichrist. It's the same system. This Antichrist power denies the Father and the Son. Satan, through this system, is working a deception that will fool people to the point of denying the Father and the Son. Well, how is this possible? Does any church even deny the Father and the Son? What does that really mean? This is what we want to find out. You see, God loves us so much, He has given us a number of descriptions. This power that we looked at comes under many titles in the Scriptures. It comes under the title of Babylon the Great, The great whore, as we read about it in Revelation 17. The first beast in Revelation 13. It's also referred to as the little horn in Daniel 7. And John in his epistles refers to this power as the Antichrist. The question is, who is this power? What is this church system that the devil will use to deceive the whole world into worshiping him? And how is he going to deny the truth about the Father and the Son to accomplish this worship? If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.